my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Happy holidays, Adlandia. Alexa and I wanted to bring you a conversation that we had a few weeks back just after Thanksgiving with three-peat guest Jared Dicker. Jared Dicker is back to talk to us about all things Web3. As the Web3 NFT crypto conversation continues on, we wanted to take a step back and really dig into some of the fundamentals around what we need to know as marketers and the implications and applications as we turn the page into 22. Hope you enjoy. I'm off my game today. No, you're not. That's true. People are going to have to start making better content. I think we're going to be talking about this for a long time. When you program for everyone, you program for no one. I think it's that we're a purpose-driven platform. Like we're trying to get to substance. How okay. was that? Are you happy with that? Yeah. This is marketing therapy right now. It, it really is. <laughs> yeah. What's up? I'm Laura Carrenti. And I'm Alexa Kristen. Welcome back, Adlandia. Happy holidays, Adlandia. As you know, I have a very big family, all of which convenes at my house. Every year. This is a tradition, right? Yes. Longtime tradition in my house watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And... Uh, it was the first time, and very relevant to this conversation, 
uh, I had heard the word NFTs in such a mainstream setting. You know, so much of what I've been following in the NFT space uh, either comes from you or Web3 Twitter. And it was part of the parade where they were talking about Disney putting out a series of NFTs and special moments, which I think you picked up as well. Yeah, there was a bunch of AR work that they did. Actually, there was a balloon. If no one saw this, my daughter, my six-year-old daughter watches Macy's Day Parade. So I was sitting there with her and there was an AR balloon and a whole AR Millennium Falcon that came onto the screen. It actually looked very real. She thought it was a real balloon and then it flew away into the sky. It was amazing. But what was exciting about it, this is why it was cool, to your point, was like super mainstream. As our producer Ryan shared, it doesn't get more mainstream than the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Uh, And then I went a step further and just looking into it, Macy's was auctioning off 10 NFTs, all proceeds going to the Make-A-Wish Foundation and releasing upwards of 9,500 free NFTs. So are we at an interesting inflection point? NFTs, crypto, Web3 did not come up at my Thanksgiving table, but I imagine it it came up at uh, many others. And so we thought it was the perfect time, Alexa, to have a longtime friend and guest of Atlandia come back on the show. Our three Pete, Jared Dicker, general partner at the Chernin Group, PCG. He is coming back to join us. And one of the things that Laura and I have been talking a lot about is how does the community and the show really become a bridge from where we are today to where we're going tomorrow. And Jared is a great guest who's always been kind of not only open to, but pushing towards a very kind of real future. Really like here's the infrastructure that's being built. These are the things that I can point to. And I know for certain that these are the things that are being thought about, invested in, built. And so we're going to continue to do that, continue to have those types of guests and conversations. Jared is one of those people. He has a really interesting kind of background and I think perspective and all of that really makes sense to where he is today. But music journalism to technology to media company, running ad tech and running the advertising products at Washington Post now to building, funding and finding the best in the crypto media space. What was really interesting about the Jared conversation is this idea of brands having the ability to drive value in ways that they have never had. The the idea about getting away from the just transactional, just advertising side of things. Again, advertising is not bad. This is not a versus. This is an and. It's an iteration also. A hundred percent. It's an iteration. But it's really about how do you start taking content again, which has been happening for the last 10 to 15 years, and not just create value for your viewer, but now it's about creating value with your viewer, with your audience. I think we're going to have a lot more CEOs and see a lot more CEOs in particular starting to look at where they can extend their business. Where can they actually start to find more? value market opportunities through Web3 and specifically on the quote unquote brand side, specifically on how that company starts to translate in new places. I thought you were going to say transact because it is a new way of thinking about transacting. Oh, 100% that too. 
a hundred percent that too. We are there with transaction, new transaction models, new payment methods and models. I mean, you can look at Square to Coinbase to any kind of crypto wallet, et cetera. Huge, huge changes in this and how we buy, how we invest, right, is completely changing. And one example of that I will give you, Coinbase's CEO recently said, I see us eventually and probably near future rather than far future looking more like Instagram. Why? Because that's how people interact. But to your point, transaction and payment, how we pay and transact is completely changing into something that I think is much more uh, mainstream in how we live. And you can look at shop, you know, you can look at Shopify, you can look at e-commerce, you can look at what Rachel Tipograph started doing with Micmac and thinking about how do you bring the transaction and the experience much closer together or one in the same. Um, I think that's influenced how we transact. I'm thinking a lot about from the brand marketing side, what are the implications? And there's two ways in right now that I am able to start to begin to understand. The first one is about loyalty and providing tokens to consumers. Presumably, in a similar way, you give people loyalty points. The loyalty points from my experience, particularly in retail, you buy something, you accrue points, you use those points to unlock offers. That could be free shipping and handling, for example, right? That could be early access to holiday sales. What I'm learning in this space is having a token also gives you access into this community. And it's really interesting to think about how a token allows you access into a curated dinner um, with a hundred other people who are interested in said brand that want to come together and talk about specific industry, right? So this idea of moving from uh, loyalty for more consumption now can become loyalty for more content, loyalty for more experience, loyalty for more access, loyalty for more like-minded conversations, ownership. Yeah. So there's that angle of it. And then the other one is the transaction element. We've been tracking over the last few weeks the creation of the Constitution DAO. A number of people got together and said there is a copy of the Constitution coming up for auction at Sotheby's. We're going to begin to crowdsource the funds to bid on a copy of the U.S. Constitution. One in 20. And it created fractionalized ownership. So the spoiler alert is, unfortunately, the Constitution DAO was outbid during this auction. By a single bidder. By a single bidder. But there's some amazing statistics that came with this. Record number of money crowdfunded uh, in less than 72 hours. It was over $20 million. I read on the Constitution DAO Twitter, they had 17,437 donors with a median donation size of $206.26 with a significant percentage of these donations coming from wallets that had been initialized for the first time. This thing took off in a way that was fascinating to watch. And despite the fact that they were outbid, proof of concept in fractionalized ownership, thinking about a future where people are going to come together to buy things 
it's just fascinating to think about all of the different things that this type of infrastructure can make possible. Totally. And what I thought was the most exciting was that it wasn't about a board ape, which I love board ape yacht club. That's not it. But I think that the world um, that's starting to learn about NFTs and learning about DAOs, there's a lot of skepticism, right? Around the money that's spent, the things that are being created, digital art, et cetera, et cetera. And for the first time, I think that we saw a major historical coveted artifact that people got around um, not only with their dollars and their wallets, they got around in philosophy. It made sense. And here's the thing. The thing that's different about the DAO is that it also says as much about your identity and your belief system, what you do and who you are, as much as, you know, maybe the board ape you buy or the bio you have for yourself and the work that you do. Well, your wallet becomes your bio, right? And there you go, which is pretty crazy. Like if you start to think about what you buy, what you invest in and the DAOs or the communities that you belong to, that starts making up an identity for you um, that is maybe more meaningful than your identity on Instagram, Finstagram, Facebook, et cetera. Well, it's because what you're actually investing in. It's about where you're putting your wallet. And with that, we'll be right back. All right, Adlandia, we are back with our partners at Yieldmo. In this mini series, we take on how contextual targeting is being reimagined as brands make every interaction with their consumer meaningful. Welcome, Lisa Bradner, GM of Data and Analytics from Yieldmo. Thank you so much. Great to be back. Always great to talk to you guys. Lisa, every brand, every marketer is chasing the customer and the consumer, what they want. And brands really need to have a perspective on where they show up, how they show up, and what those consumers need. And I think it really changes how marketers actually process and move through not only their marketing organizational structure, but maybe more importantly, right now, their marketing process. How does that change the role of the marketer and really getting more closely aligned with the need, like a specific need of the consumer? First of all, I would say, I would argue we've swung too far to sort of this insecure running after our customers, hoping they'll pay attention to us, as opposed to going back to the brand DNA and saying, who am I? What do I stand for? How do I show up? What do I offer? And what cultural moments do I belong in? And building from there. So it's a mix, right? It's it's what cultural moments are important to my consumers, but what cultural moments are important to my consumers that also fit for me. It's really closer to product management in the sense of, yes, sure, you do research and you know what the market needs and you understand what the competitors are offering. And you know what people are looking for, but you've got a really clear brand value proposition and you're clear where that belongs and where that doesn't. And you're willing to, to sacrifice some of the, you know, constant running to have bigger impact in key moments. And I think that that's part of it too, that sure, there's an always on strategy and a media will always have a level of always on, but that you're really thinking about 
the cultural moments or the seasonal moments or the audience moments where you need to be there and how you show up there. And you're crafting an experience around that, that your media and creative partners are helping you build soup to nuts. I wish more media buyers, creative directors, chief creative officers would actually think of themselves. And by the way, CMOs would think of themselves as product marketers in the way you're talking about, because it actually upends the way you start to think about your media. It starts to become a playground where you can get so close to the consumer in vis-a-vis context and vis-a-vis really testing those different signals um, that it actually just changes the the whole kind of role of a, of a media person, a media buyer, or a, or a creative. Well, and you just said something really important, right? The testing. I mean, let's keep building on the product analogy, right? Here's a prototype. Here's an MVP. Let's put it out. Let's let's see how people react to it. Let's pull it back, maybe tweak it a little more. Now we're ready for our big launch. But this notion, and you know, it, it is, it's rooted in sort of 20th century TV campaigns of we have the campaign, ta-da, um, versus real-time data analytics and learning that can let us constantly iterate and get smart. You know, it it's thinking like a direct marketer, but not in the way that we think of that sort of brand and performance line. Is it performing from brand metrics? Is it performing from sales metrics? Is it performing from long-term brand health metrics? Is it performing in terms of next step of sales happening? And everybody in your organization, brand or demand, needs to be incented across all of those KPIs so they're working together. How does this then potentially bring brand and direct response closer together? A few years ago, we've talked about it, you know, when you think like this, it completely collapses the funnel. Is is that what you're saying? And and how do you think about that and really guide your clients into um, kind of that test and learn mindset? Collapse the funnel. I totally understand why people use that term, but I think it's potentially dangerous because then it, the, 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 the temptation is to turn every single ad into a direct response ad, right? Or try to cram that call to action in your brand campaign. I think that the real-time nature of data and putting a DR message and a brand message out in the same place and testing and seeing which one are people engaging with, which one's working for you, which one is getting the next thing to happen, and you know, constantly running your brand health metrics so you make sure you're not undercutting your brands to drive sales, constantly running your sales metrics and making sure that you're getting, getting the sales numbers you need so it's it's more subtle in the sense of understanding what each medium is best at, but then testing that hypothesis constantly. Um, so you're testing like a direct marketer, but that doesn't mean everything is a direct marketing message. So Lisa, three things just to recap this conversation that marketers need in their contextual toolbox. Connecting media and creativity finding moments of serendipity, and common sense. How is Yieldmo helping advertisers achieve one, two, or all three of those things to get started on the roadmap to contextual reimagined? Absolutely. Uh, You know, the easiest way to get started is to start now. And I think the common sense part of this is starting to test and learn the reimagining contextual and what that means. 
we have pre-curated deals that can be bought through your, your trading desk and can quickly be executed. So you can start to get that data. You can start getting reporting. You can start to understand how we're reimagining contextual, the signals that are available. And you can start imagining for your own company all the ways that those signals could be used to guide your marketing effort. You know, that's just one of many ways to start. I uh, love to talk to you about dynamic content and a bunch of other things, but uh, let's start there. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much to you and the team at Yieldmo for this conversation and for supporting Atlandia. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always fun. Welcome back, Adlandia. We have a good friend and a third-time Adlandia guest, Jared Dicker, the general partner at Chernin Group, ECG. Welcome back, Jared. Hello. Great to be here. So, Jared, you have had this unlikely, very nonlinear career. You started out as a journalist. You ran technology. Uh, and the whole innovation advertising group at Washington Post. You went over to be the founding CEO of Poet, a blockchain startup that was looking at how decentralization and journalism and blockchain was going to work. And now, now you're leading the crypto practice for the Chernin Group. How'd you get here? It's, um, uh, I mean, how do I describe it? I like, I've, I've, I very much accidentally have fallen into all of these different jobs that have been extremely fun. Um, you know, as you mentioned, I started as a music journalist. I'm a I'm a huge music head and, you know, was pretty sure that that was going to be my life and accidentally got a job at the Huffington Post off Craigslist and found, you know, found it so exciting to be building. I don't think I knew that. That's a new fact. <laughs> I didn't know it was Craigslist. Yeah. I mean, and and like this wasn't even too long ago. Like I worked at the Huffington Post in 2010, 2009, 2010. So um, people were still, I guess, looking for jobs off Craigslist then, or I just didn't know what I was doing, but ended up at the Huffington Post and really just started to fall in love with the business side of media, found that it was a pretty low bar. I'm sure many of the people who listen to this show, uh, listen to the show in order to be inspired and kind of think about how to lift that bar and I just found that to be a very like liberating, amazing experience. So stayed in media for a while. Um, my venture into blockchain the first time was really a result of kind of things that I was seeing in the media business. Um, you know, very obvious ones like fake news and deep fakes, but even more so like the the sentiment that many media companies have, which is their content is valuable. They invest in talent. It's better than their competitors. But when you looked at the um, all the business models that reward that content, it's all effectively the same. Like a $3 million investigative journalism piece from the New York Times could render the same financial results as a BuzzFeed, you know, viral listicle article, even though so much money was put into one and barely any investment was going into the other. So that was kind of the, the main um, catalyst for me wanting to get into blockchain. The technology was, well, what if all digital content starts to go on chain and what are really cool things that we can do, uh, both in terms of leveraging provenance, but also ownership and control to kind of put more value on creative works uh, way too early, um, but really kind of got me um, got me obsessed with this space. And now, you know, I've been at Churning Group for about five, six months, 
Um, I get to work with all of these founders that are now building, you know, many of which are building on that vision or aligned with that vision that, you know, poet, poet, or like originally seeked out to, to solve. And it's been absolutely phenomenal. And I'm a, I like love people and love hanging out with people and I'm extremely ADD. So there's no better job for me than to work with a million companies at once. So Jared, so much of the hype, intrigue, and interest around Web3 is seemingly coming at us from all angles. Very, very heavy in Twitter and, and following certainly your Twitter handle, which if you're not following at Jared Dicker, there's so much Web2 to Web3 insight knowledge being dropped. But let's go to the 101. Can you take us to, in its most simplistic form, the definition or at least the fundamental principles of Web3? What do we need to abandon or, or build from in Web2 to really understand the power and impact of Web3? Yeah. So one thing I'll start with, since this is Atlantia and there's a lot of marketers that listen to this, is that I think I think we're hearing a lot more about Web3 because it is such a better brand and name to market than crypto and blockchain for the masses. You know, Web3 has been a term that's been thrown around and there's you know, there's there's some people that argue that we're 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 not in Web three, we're in Web four, you know, blah blah blah. But like putting that all aside, I think Web three as a um, as a description and as a marketing term to describe what's happening has really stuck. And you know, it's kind of become a bit obvious when people are looking at differentiation and the evolution of how we're moving from you know social mobile web into blockchain. Um, has been something that's really stuck. So I think that that's been a great marketing victory um, and one that I've been leveraging and leading on very heavily as well. Um, the ways that kind of like, there's a bunch of different directions to really think about Web3, but the biggest I think is um, this bottoms up approach versus a top down approach. So when you think about media, I think it's a great way to um, kind of really visualize this is that, you know, media for the past 25 years on the internet has been really top down, right? It's the brand. And, you know, the brand owns distribution at one point, you know, helps manage the audience, provides content and programming that keeps people engaged. Um, but the relationship with the consumer or the reader or the user um, is very transactional and kind of one sided. It's like you either pay for content with money through a subscription and you get access to it and it kind of ends there. Or, you know, you get content for free by means of attention and advertising. And the content is there, but there's really been like no strong benefit for uh, the individual consumer and reader beyond the programming and content itself. And that's because of this top down approach. And Web3 is really leaning in on this bottoms up approach. So a great way to really kind of visualize this as well is um, if you write for Substack in Web2, uh, you're writing on a platform, you know, you have a newsletter, uh, you are um, making money, you know, or driving subscriptions off of your newsletter. So Jared Dicker has a newsletter, he's making money off it. You know, I'm like, I kind of want Substack to succeed, but I'm pretty indifferent, right? Because I'm not really incentivized. Like if Substack doesn't exist tomorrow, I can move my blog over to, you know, Mirror or, or uh, Medium or other types of platforms. I'm like, okay, if other readers or competitors succeed. But again, like, that's really not an incentive that I have. I'm more interested, you know, if my newsletter does well. And with Web3 and Bottoms Up, you effectively are incentivized to do all three, right? You yeah. as a publisher want to make money and drive value off of your work. Because of the way that token mechanics work, 
you effectively have equity in that platform. So not only are you making money and driving value out of your work, but if the platform succeeds, you succeed as well. And you're kind of rooting for all other writers and contributors to be successful too, because that makes the platform more successful. So it's a way more bottoms up, collective, kind of holistic approach. And um, what I'd say is like, I don't think Web two and Web three is binary, and we could go deeper on this. Like, I think there's, you know, there's there's areas of opportunity for both sides. But the way I would think about Web three is a completely new evolution, new business models, new ways of working together and coordinating, um, and really kind of an unlock from what we've traditionally been locked into, especially on the media side, which has been advertising and subscriptions. What pushed this frenzy around NFTs? And as you're going into it, the practicality of, of how that's going to expand, shape, grow, etc. So I think very quite simply, like you could just think of NFTs as bringing digital ownership to the internet. Um, you know, in all of its existence of the internet, um, we have presumed that anything published or put online can easily be replicated, mimicked, stolen. And we built entire businesses around that, right? Like Napster basically deconstructed music. And then we built music again back up through Spotify and Apple and SoundCloud, et cetera. Um, we saw it in digital media, right? Like, you know, the whole entire business of the Huffington Post was around paraphrasing New York Times articles, but winning in search and social because we wanted, we, if we got more traffic, we would drive more revenue through advertising. So the whole kind of ethos of the internet was that nothing that was really done digitally to be provably owned. Thus, we built no business models around that. And the main disruptor with NFTs is that for the first time ever, digital ownership has provably come to the internet. And, um, you know, that's, that's a massive impact that can't be overstated, but I think is very underappreciated and not yet understood, because we've just been trained and have worked and have you know engaged on a web where that just has never been the case. So the main the main thing to know with NFTs is that it is a function of digital ownership. I think people focus on what's transacting on OpenSea and looking at JPEGs and digital art, and they start to think about NFTs in this very macro vision, which is like everything needs to be a hundred thousand dollars or everything's collectible or everything's tradable. Um, but it's really important to not think about NFTs as a product. You really have to think of NFTs as a process, which is, you know, when you put something online, you want to be able to prove ownership um, and provenance of that sort of information. So right now we're seeing that happen in digital art. Um, we're seeing a massive um, kind of acceleration towards music. But my, my point of view is that every single piece of content or IP or information that goes on the internet will start as an NFT. And, and we're going to very quickly enter a world where every single thing is an NFT. Um, you know, everyone is going to be able to seek provenance of information who created what. Uh, it really opens up like, massive opportunities throughout a variety of industries. I mean, one of which is ticketing, right? Like if all tickets were NFTs, um, a lot of like league owners, let's say, you know, the owner, the owner of the New York Giants um, sells primary tickets. And then in the secondary market, when they go on StubHub, they, you know, see no value return of that, right? The fans who buy the tickets could resell them, resell them, resell them, resell them. And the owners, you know, get no benefits there. If tickets become an NFT... That's a really good example, by the way. Yeah, because if tickets become an NFT, 
all the like royalties are programmable through smart contracts. So if you issue a ticket as an NFT, you say, you know, primary sales are $100 and all subsequent secondary sales, 10% goes back to the owner. And that happens completely programmably. Like there doesn't need to be a human intermediary. It's just every time that ticket is resold and goes from a wallet to another wallet, 10% goes back to the owner. So now you live in a world where owners, right, or, or artists or whomever, right, like it could be musicians who are selling tickets, they don't just benefit from secondary markets, but now they encourage it, right? The idea right. of StubHub is actually fascinating. And um, there is, there's like some conversations happening where, you know, eventually secondary markets may be more lucrative for artists or owners or, you know, people that work in creative entertainment type businesses, where secondary just is a lot more lucrative than primary. What I think is also important to think about, uh, like, as I mentioned, Web 2 to Web 3 is kind of evolutionary. Um, and Chris Dixon has a great point about things being skeuomorphic is that we're kind of in that phase of blockchain, which was very similar to when we went from linear and print to the web to mobile, where, you know, until it becomes very obvious what's foundational and native, everybody has like, a mobile strategy and a mobile website and thinking about how to retrofit this new technology into their existing models. Yes. And then all of a sudden, right, the app store comes out and it's a holy shit moment where, oh, this is what mobile is. And this is how mobile native things are built. And, you know, like that kind of really sparks and becomes obvious to the masses what this new industry is. In blockchain, we are in that intermediary phase where there's a lot of companies thinking about their blockchain strategy or how they can leverage it with their existing business or what their blockchain angle is going to be. And all of a sudden, something's going to happen rather quickly that is very blockchain foundational and obvious where we're going to see right the blockchain native companies start to rise and be pure Web3. And it's just going to become very obvious that we're in this next phase. So I'd be careful to like focus too much on how blockchain works for your existing business and pay more attention to you know, the things that are truly decentralized and in Web3 that are going to become foundational and lead us into this next path. Yes. What are you creating new and who are you creating with, I think, is the way I think about it. And process, right? And it is a whole new process. Yeah. So, Jared, I want to I want to break down a couple of things, because for a lot of our listeners, they're marketers, they're marketing leaders, break down Providence. It's actually so I was an art student. And Providence came from art, right? So the way you knew who created a work and then who owned that work was Providence. There was a date, a history of that ownership passed down quite literally on paper and the value of that particular asset. And so talk about why Providence, you've said it a few times in the conversation, is so critical to the idea, the process of blockchain, of Web3. And then what I also think is under talked about, especially in on, on the marketing side, is smart contracts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So on the provenance side of things, I mean, I think like this is, again, blockchain's, you know, biggest core value, you know, being, being, you know, effectively an immutable database is that you are able to kind of see where information derives from um, and then you could effectively build things on top of that. So um, I said before that I believe, you know, I like to think about NFTs not just as a product, but as a process. And the notion that all digital content is going to be an NFT means that 
every single like inception of an idea or IP, frankly, whenever it's published to something, um, is going to store all of the information of who created it, you know, who were the collaborators, who purchased it, what hands it exchanged. And you could really kind of drill that down. And, you know, to the point that you were making with art, and I think why we're seeing so much um, so much adoption and excitement happening in the digital art world is because it is carrying that ethos over, right? You can yeah. see um, get artists from original creators, you know, that value is perceived and purchased. And then you could see like a lot of people find value in purchasing something that might have been owned by, you know, Alexa Kristen previously. Like there's there's yep. a value accrual that is built on top of this sort of provenance. And blockchain, you know, really kind of opens and enables that. Um, what I loved about it in the early poet days was, you know, and this was like a time where fake news was really, you know, the topic to share was that, you know, there could be a world where you're going through your Facebook newsfeed and you see a video of Obama speaking and it may look like Obama and sound like Obama and have the CNN logo, um, but it might not be. It might be a deep fake. It might have been created by someone else. It, you know, maybe false information. And I believe that there's going to be more value brought to the internet by being able to kind of expose and bring that information up. So the main kind of ethos of that is that you are able to kind of like build a supply chain around everything that is happening, and you're able to kind of track it down to its inception, which you know is great information and data to have, but also so important when it comes to perceived value and ability to you know transact and and um, kind of better understand like purchase of goods. And truth. Yeah. I mean, it gets pretty heady in terms of truth and verifying truth. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, pretty exciting, especially when you go back to the fake news, which I don't think we're out of. Yeah. And like smart contracts, you know, just quickly go hand in hand. It's like if you're if all information is going to be put on chain, then you want to be able to programmably set the rules of operations of how that's going to work. So, you know, the price of it being purchased, you know, what secondary market setups start to look like. But really trying to figure out how you build more efficiency in that. And that's kind of goes to the whole ethos of kind of the ownership economy, right? It's like totally. we are we are for the first time like able to prove ownership digitally on digital content on the internet. And what's fascinating is that yes, we're like seeing all of these new platforms and crypto native opportunities emerge that are built off of that. But think about how much we have to rethink how we've structured our businesses on the internet for the past 20 years, right? We assume that digital ownership wasn't possible because it wasn't, and now all of a sudden it is. So I think we're going to see a lot of existing like industries and businesses really start to rethink, like one, how this affects them, and two, what the opportunity could possibly be for them to build better businesses. Because for most of them, um, you know, the internet was highly disruptive for a lot of these legacy businesses, whether it was like newspapers, record labels, um, or broadcast stations. And pre-internet was really an era where they owned everything. They didn't just like own the assets, but they owned their audience, they owned distribution. And, you know, this idea of digital ownership could bring a lot of that back. So I think it's interesting to look at both sides of the coin. And brands have had to keep pace with that. I think a lot of marketing teams, CMOs are thinking about how does this impact my communication strategy? How does this impact my marketing plan? How does this impact what I'm buying, how I'm buying, where I'm buying, why I'm buying? What would your advice be to brands? Because to me, this isn't a should I, this is a matter of when I. 
And what's the process brands have to go through to adapt to what will become the next iteration of the web? I mean, the whole IP conversation and what's happening in this space with kind of NFTs and and um, and PFPs, which are kind of the profile pictures, the board API clubs, the crypto punks, the ones that are kind of um, um, becoming people's identity, is that IP is starting to become composable, which is fascinating. So a lot of these major NFT projects, you know, namely board API club, um, they've sold 10,000 apes. And if you purchase one of these apes, you have full commercial rights to do whatever you want with that ape. So um, they have like the creators of board apes, like make money off the first purchase and make money off all subsequent purchases. However, if you buy that ape, you could use that ape for whatever you want. You could build t-shirts, you could sell them, you could leverage their likeness. Um, a friend of mine built uh, a character out of his board ape called Jenkins the Valet. Um, they're 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 literary writers. Um, they built this entire character, you know, wrote this entire story and created this narrative around this ape who was the valet at the board ape yacht club and all the things that he sees and experiences. And um, uh, uh, it it got massive. He started selling merch, you know, physical merch, digital merch, and now he's signed to CAA. Um, to do a book deal. And has a huge following on Discord, I follow. Yeah, a massive following on Discord, but it's like, it would be a situation where like Disney would create a new uh, movie and effectively say, well, any of the fans who purchase or are part of the community could go and build on top of that IP and monetize it, right? So it's a completely new way of thinking about IP um, and the composability of IP, which effectively is like IP is put into, you know, into the ether and then other people could build on top of it as they please. But that's a major shift. Um, and I think it's a shift that a lot of brands need to think about um, because there's definitely a lot of benefit to enable that, to open that up, to get people more deeply engaged, to have more affinity with brands, um, you know, but arguably like isn't going to work everywhere. Like you're not going to see Marvel or Disney or others kind of rush to that too quickly. Um, so that's a big thing that I think is like worth everyone who's listening to this, spending their time on, like really kind of seeing all of the, um, building of IP and leverage of IP that's happening in the NFT world. And that is because of just how the business model and structure is set up. You have to be very authentic in this space. Uh, I think, I think you could probably say that for everything, like for every, um, you know, big marketing trend or, you know, the way, the way I've been saying it now is like, once it makes the like Digiday or ad week or ad age, um, like things, things, things start to bubble up. And I think it's very important in this space to remain authentic. If you want to reach the right audience and, you know, be perceived well and bring the most value, because this space more than any is just very tribal, right? People have to build reputation, like both like socially, but like quite literally on chain, like everything you do with your crypto wallet is, is like recorded. So like, you know, people, people build reputation. Um, you have to like be in and spend time and spend energy, like really kind of showing value. And I think, you know, brands that may try to come in and do an NFT drop, um, you know, could often come across as like inauthentic. So I think there needs to be a lot of time really put in and thought about how, how brands play, where they play, what that value actually is. Because I think for most, at least at this time, since it's early, it's better for them to stay out of it than for them to just artificially be in it. Here's what I think is really exciting. 
I actually think for the true brand strategist, right? And that's not just marketing. That's looking at the brand, the business, the business models, those types of things for the true brand strategist. This is an incredibly exciting time. So it's not just about associating your brand and your product, right? And thinking about how does it live in this new world? It's really about how to extend that brand ethos and purpose and philosophy, right? Into all new spaces and places. That to me, when you say authenticity, that's what I think about. And that it's like almost a, the possibility in my mind, why I get so excited when you were talking, you see me like bouncing, why I get so <laughs> yeah. excited is because for the true kind of business minded marketer and strategist, this is kind of a return almost to a classic era of marketing that actually drives new marketplace value. And if you're thinking about your brand like that, if you're thinking about your infrastructure like that, you will win. Alexa, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about there's 10,000 iterations of the board ape. There is only one iteration of most legacy brand logos. You would never dream of iterating on a logo that has been in the market for over 100 years, that, that identity and the equity that exists there. Thinking about breaking up one of those logos into 10,000 pieces and then handing it as to shareholders who can make it their own. Now, instead of having this one vertical identity, there are 10,000 ways to move into new spaces and places that all will come back to a central ethos, right? I mean, is, is that fair to say? Yeah, a way to really just boil that down in one sentence is that every single one of your customers becomes a paid influencer. That's right. Right. So like right now, like I'm drinking like a spin drift and I have an iPhone and, you know, these are like utilities and things I consume. But anyone who sees me, I'm effectively marketing their products for them. Right. But right now I don't get any benefit out of that. Um, and of course, like, you know, there's an argument that I shouldn't. Right. And that's not the way it's set up. In Web3, it's different, right? In Web3, because you are both, like, I wrote a piece called Why Subscribe When You Could Invest, right? You're effectively a consumer and a shareholder of that brand, right? You are thus incentivized, right, to, to promote it, to be a part of it. So if you're building native Web3, you know, you are really thinking about each of your customers as like an influencer, you know, a subscriber, someone who shares mutually beneficial value and tries to push the brands. And that's how you really kind of need to set things up. That's also why, right, the, the authenticity is so important, because I do believe that in Web3, the biggest opportunity today, right, is in the active consumer. I think like, the biggest things that we're seeing unlocked, at least from an investment perspective, and what I'm looking at, is this notion of 24-7 consumer. So people being able to participate and engage around the clock, right? Not limited on time. Um, we kind of saw that unlock with Coinbase, right? Coinbase basically said, you don't have to trade markets between not, like nine and five and not over the weekends right. because that's when it opens and closes. You trade on your time. And there's, you, you know, we're seeing that across a variety of industries. Like we invested in a company called Z.Run, which is a virtual horse racing game where people purchase horses, right? As NFTs, they could breed them, they could race them, and then they could 
earn value and upside, right? If their horse places whenever they want, you don't have to purchase a physical horse. You don't have to go to the Derby. You know, you're not constricted by physical limitations. And on the other side, right? It's like this idea of like ownership, like ownership is massive and it is unlocking a ton of different things. So it is, it is foundationally something that is completely new. Um, and you know, that is going to take a lot of like infrastructure focus and re-architecture of how things currently exist in order to get comfortable doing that, which is why I believe like a lot of these things are going to happen natively in blockchain first before they're really going to happen, you know, in, in more legacy environments. Some of the things you're saying and also this idea makes me think so much of Balaji Servanson, um, inheriting versus founding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it is everyone should read it. It is brilliant and it is right. And we've been in this kind of um, inheritance world. And I want to, this is a little jump us into media. You know, if you think about all the major media companies in the world, they've been inherited, literally passed down in from families, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And yep. you think about that. And now Web3 is this opportunity and blockchain has created this opportunity that to your point, if you are a practitioner, if you like really learn the technology, really understand it, get involved with the community, and you become a practitioner, the idea and the potential for partnership and founding, I think we're going to see a completely kind of new twist. So that takes us to what is the future of media, Jared? <laughs> yeah, so I, um, I mean, you... You hit on a topic that'll segue nicely into this. I always believed for like years that, you know, the media business was somewhat evolutionary, that, you know, we had advertising and subscriptions and, you know, all kind of innovations for new models kind of emerged out of that. So, you know, e-commerce was effectively a part of advertising and, you know, subscriptions kind of moved through like membership type models. But basically, we had two foundational pillars that were built out of. And Web3 is really kind of the first time like in, you know, 100 years that we've had a very revolutionary type model. And it kind of has to do with we're seeing like a lot of people that are building in media leveraging it right now. So the ability to basically crowdfund your media business, you know, before it launches as an NFT. So there's some companies that are like, I'm going to write about this topic. You know, this is our editorial plan. We're going to do it for six months. This is the amount that we need to raise, right? In exchange, you get this NFT, which gives you, you know, kind of like founder type relationships with the media company itself. You may get social tokens out of that, that give you governance rights. So you can help us decide what we should cover, what topics are interesting, if there's treasury, what events we should do, but really kind of like reinventing the idea of how media companies need to be structured versus traditional VC or advertising models or subscription models or billionaire buyers. Like, And what's amazing with that sort of structure is that your readers are you know, kind of foundational in the success of your company. And it's kind of built off a sentiment that I think we have today, right? Like I subscribe to a lot of Substacks. I subscribe to some media um, and like at least like news media or written media. Um, for the most part, I'm doing it right in in a somewhat altruistic way. Like I may read the content, but I may, but I really like the topic, and I want them to continue writing because I think it's important. And I may want to support the writer um, because they're my friend. And 
all of those kind of feelings could completely be stronger if, you know, I moved over to feeling more like an investor, because that's kind of what I want to do, right? Like, the content's cool, but I really believe in what you're doing. I want to support you. And how could I start to align incentives to do that? So that's really where I think Web3 revolutionizes media in a very fantastic way, um, where, you know, you really have this core group of people who effectively are baked in distribution, right? Because they're incentivized to do so. They want to share this content. Um, they're hyper incentivized to engage. So there's no like gimmicks to get people to click you know, or to get people to spend time in the chat. Anyone who spends time in these discords or these DAOs or like sees the activity happening there because everyone is kind of sharing the same purpose as opting in and seeking and, and, and finding value in kind of what they're doing. And that's kind of like, I always use the Huffington Post example, right? Because we kind of did this in 2009, 2010. Um, the success of the Huffington Post really wasn't about the content um, going viral, right? Or winning search and social, which was very important. It was about the comment section. If you remember, like so many people would spend time there. They'd comment, they'd engage a conversation. We built an intrinsic badging mechanism, which basically the more you participated, the more you completed, the more you unlocked, maybe you were able to curate conversations or be a lead moderator or eventually blog on the Huffington Post. And crypto is that, Web3 is that with extrinsic added on as well. So not only is it valuable for you socially, but now it can also be valuable for you financially. And that changes the whole ethos of kind of how we think about this. And that's not going to be possible for like, you know, WAPO or Wall Street Journal or BuzzFeed or others to really do, right? They have their existing business and they'll probably leverage NFTs and there'll be great things that they could test and do there. But to really see the revolutionized mechanisms that are going to happen, we're going to see things happen more foundationally. And I think like, we'll see that like, the creator economy was a great bridge to that because people yes. were leaving traditional jobs. They're building on their own. They'll realize, hey, this is really hard. Um, I want to find other like-minded people to build with. And they're going to effectively build their own media companies. And I am very hopeful that they're going to build those on top of platforms like Mirror and like, you know, these Web3 tech platforms that have built these functions and mechanisms for them to do that. What happens to CNNs and NBCs? Even more important, I look at Netflix. Netflix is still a one pipe distribution. They own it. They decide, right? They decide the content, the programming, they own it and they distribute it. Yeah. So my feelings here, and I kind of said this before, is that I feel Web3 at this moment is really about the active consumer. Um, I think the passive consumer platforms are more powerful than ever and more valuable than ever. Like, I think it's going to be very hard to disrupt Spotify where I get all the music in real time for $10. Netflix has the best programming. Um, you know, when I consume Netflix, I'm kind of sitting back. I want to be told what to watch. Um, same with CNN. So I think that there's a place. Like I said, like, I don't think it's binary. I don't think yep. Web3 needs to sweep through. That's why I do believe the biggest, like, the biggest, like, holy shit moments are going to come from foundationally Web3 properties that show us how these things are done from the ground up. Because I do think, you know, like, a great example is Twitter. I think Web3 conversation in crypto has made Twitter a Web2 centralized platform yes. more powerful than ever. More people are spending time. That's where the conversations are. That's where people are putting their NFTs as their profile pictures. So there's definitely a place. I think the focus for Web3 and the excitement for Web3 should be around the active consumer, how you can better incentivize people to engage or do things, thinking about both the intrinsic social and extrinsic financial mechanics that 
crypto unlocks and really try to see how those could you know better affect your business. As you're talking about the implications for the media industry around subscription versus investing, that transition, I really don't see much of a difference on the brand side either. On our last episode with Michaela Solar-March, who was the former CMO of Tishman, we were talking about DAOs and the idea of consumers coming in um, around brands, around spaces, around clubs, whatever the case is, and actually having that level of ownership through investment. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I feel like if you go to like my ethos that all digital content will be NFTs, then like the biggest opportunity I think for brands is, you know, anything that they do physically should have something um, connected to them digitally, right? Because now there's a lot of value and perceived function on that. So like, I think like the fashion industry, you know, we're seeing like in games like Roblox or even, you know, more kind of blockchain based games, people are paying a lot of money for like assets, you know, what they look like, um, you know, how they could use them within the functions of how they work within kind of more virtual worlds. I was going to say metaverse, but I, I promised myself I wouldn't say metaverse on this, <laughs> on this, on this, on this thing. But like, I think, I think for brands, like a philosophical way and like very like, you know, kind of heady way to think about it is this, right? We, we spend more time than ever online. Um, like I talk to probably hundreds of people a day online who know me through my Twitter avatar or through my email address or, you know, through Instagram, like however, however I'm communicating with them. Rarely anyone sees me physically, right? Be, besides my family and maybe someone I meet for dinner. And the whole movement of Web3 is more people living online, right? Like how we make money online, you know, how we spend our time and identity and status are massive unlocks and opportunities on the brand side for what it looks like when we live online. Like I wear this hat, I wear this shirt, I have tattoos, right? It's like, if more people see me online and I care about my presence, then I'm going to want to represent the brands that I love have the kind of perceived, you know, kind of notion and identity that I want. And that's where I think brands really start to start to really push and unlock. And the Web3, the this, and you guys will know the stat better, like the early days of e-com. Remember, it was like, oh, women, women like aren't spending money online. And now what, like, I think they make up like 80%. But think about Web3. It's like right now people are transacting with MetaMask wallets and they're buying things on OpenSea. But one thing to note is like, and I don't have the science behind this, but I am way more willing to spend thousands of dollars out of my MetaMask wallet than I am to spend thousands of dollars out of my you know, actual wallet. Like just the functions, we talk about UX, but the functions of being able to make that purchasing decision and buy it because digital goods hold value is a way easier decision for marketers to think about than me actually like spending money out of my pocket. Um, but the second thing is, is that Right now, it's it's mostly dudes, right? And if blockchain and this sort of way to transact and digital ownership is is basically going to be taking over e-commerce, think about the opportunity for brands and yeah. all of these companies that are going to bring in those audiences. Agree. And that should be where the focus is. The focus should be like, how do I bring everything that I do and the value that is perceived on me physically, digitally, because now I have the functions to do it. And how do I bring my customers for that ride? And I think there will be a massive opportunity there. 
Chris Dixon was just on uh, Tim Ferriss. It was actually, it was a great, did you listen to that podcast? It was great. Yes. It was great. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. And one of the things Chris Dixon said was, he was like, Coinbase didn't need marketing, doesn't need marketing. I mean, Coinbase now has a CMO, but whatever, right? This person didn't need marketing. This person didn't need marketing because their fans and members are also owners. And those people, and this is what you're going back to, like the influencer, right? It puts so much more meaning around the influencer. Those people are doing the marketing naturally. They are incentivized to do the marketing. But I think what's really interesting for marketers and to your point about like brands getting involved in this and looking for the right partners and those types of things is like in a bit, it's kind of like also look no further, right? Than your best customer. Yeah. And how are you working with them? How are you leveraging them? How are you investing in them versus what they're buying from you? Do marketing teams now need to be thinking about DAOs and residents? Totally. I think that's a great idea. The biggest thing that, and, and, and this already exists, right? These brands and marketers and whatever companies just have to like send an internal note and ask. Like I get, you know, tons of DMs a day from people that work in agencies or media companies or elsewhere that, you know, um, want to like are fascinated with this space. Like people, people at Washington Post, I had a group of like 15 people who were into crypto, who deeply understood the space, who were, you know, frankly, like expert consumers. Yeah. And the way, the way to really go about it, if you're one of these larger companies and you're trying to figure out what's going on is one, ask who's involved, like talk to people within your organization, guarantee there's many of them that are buying NFTs that are in the discord groups that contribute to DAOs um, that are building again, like I said earlier, a reputation around their work and making those connections and figure out how to pull those people up. It's kind of like, and this is like, so like philosophically sound for DAOs, right? Like why I love DAOs um, for like many sorts of reasons. One of which is like, you aren't like categorizing value and talent based on a hierarchy. Like anyone who's worked in a large company knows that like the C-level makes the decisions. Based on like a bureaucratic hierarchy. Yeah, exactly. And DAOs effectively like break up that hierarchy. Everyone can contribute, could share ideas. You know, everything is pretty much like discussed and, you know, kind of brought to a vote in terms of governance, but it really kind of breaks down that structure. And you could argue, right, that there is a ton of value lost in companies being structured this way. I don't think like all companies should be DAOs um, by any means, but I think there should be certain groups or areas or at least certain decisions like, hey, we're a media company and we want to figure out if we should be doing things in, you know, um, like this new platform and if we should invest in it. Traditionally, they'll write a memo. <laughs> They'll discuss it with the executive team and the executive team makes a call. What they should really be doing is grabbing the 25 people that work at that company who are experts who actually live this world and let them figure it out together and make that decision. Yeah. What I think is really interesting and the big shift because I worked at GE for a long time and it is the company that actually built the manager, right? Defined what middle management (laughs) was, is that yes, grab the 25 people, hire the practitioner and work with them to figure this out, but also go and work with your customer. 
I think that customers, right, want very specific things and they know your brand sometimes. And I think more so now and is going to be increasingly better than the marketing manager working on the brand. So, of course, create with them. Of course. And like, that's where, again, like to really kind of go full circle in the conversation, it's really a bottoms up mentality. It's welcoming in, you know, your, your, your collaborators, your colleagues, your employees, your customers, and really trying to build a new way to come to better decisions to kind of move forward. Value. Um, Great value. Right. And it's probably doing that. I mean, DAOs are still early, right? Like we, we wrote about this one article on Darkstar, which is probably my favorite one so far, which was basically like that these crypto communities are the McMansions of the internet. So basically like digital ownership is here and everyone is like launching an NFT project and building a community and setting up a DAO. Um, and it's kind of like in the 80s or 90s when everyone like moved to like rural areas and, and bought, built like, their mega mansions. Right. But there was like no downtown. No one spent time building community activities. Yep. Right? It was just like a mortgage lender and a bank. And now like a lot of them are deserted or, you know, people, people are no longer live there. They move back to the cities. So it's very important, I think, to focus on programming when it comes to like building these relationships and building these communities. And I think some DAOs, depending on who's in them, will do that very well. But I think to assume that all DAOs are going to do that yeah. isn't necessarily the case. So I think like programming is very important. People that are spending time and helping to coordinate and drive conversations will be critical to like seeing seeing these things succeed long term. So Jared, what should marketers be watching in the media space or who should they be watching in the media space? Yeah, I mean, I think like Twitter, like Twitter is the best place for this. Um, you know, especially if you want to keep up to date on, you know, certain thought leadership. Um, I call it like business fiction, um, where like people are just coming up with crazy ideas that they just work to make facts, um, which I find <laughs> very like motivating. Um, or like what new like NFT projects or products or programs are really coming out. Um People, people do great lists. So like, I would like check out like Koopa Troopa is a great handle who creates these lists of like who you should follow if you want to learn more about DAOs, if you want to learn more about NFTs. Um, I feel like those things are more like, like are just so more and more common, but that's the best way. I mean, a lot of the builders and the thinkers and, um, you know, people who are spending time, they're not like writing articles or necessarily doing interviews. I mean, some are obviously like we're yeah. here, but for the most part, people are spending most of their time on Twitter, creating content, putting ideas out there, having discourse with one another. So to really go deep, one, like find the right people, which you easily can on Twitter. And two, you have to put in the effort. Like if you want to learn about Web3, sign up for a wallet, you know, get on Twitter, get into the discords like really throw yourself in it for two weeks, I guarantee you'll get like addicted and it'll just kind of open your eyes as to what's possible. And you'll both be inspired, but also pretty convinced that this is, you know, the next, the next frontier and opportunity. Who are you watching from a media company standpoint? I mean, you're leading the crypto practice, presumably. I mean, the churning group has been investing in media companies and new media companies, entertainment for a while now. This is obviously not investment advice. Just disclaimer. So I've like, I don't really, I believe that there is opportunity in bottoms up media that is going to happen through 
DAOs and, you know, companies like Mirror, um, which don't necessarily need investment um, or funding because they're basically doing that with the community community, and with the people. Um, I actually have yet to really get super excited about traditional media companies in Web3, I think, and exist and new media companies in Web3 that are outside of those like smaller kind of like bottoms up consortiums. I actually think that the brands, like the companies that are building like platforms, whether that's around like learning, you know, different ways to engage with blockchain or gaming are actually going to become the media companies. Like, I think we're like, it's funny, right? We always talk about brand as publisher and it became such like a weird, like BS type thing. Um, but in the case of... It wasn't originally. Of course, like all Laura's clients do it the best. But in like this space, like some of the most provocative thinkers and workers are the CEOs or the people that work at these platforms and they're creating content and they're bringing community. And I think like the, the media companies that we'll kind of look at and consume and, you know, in like, like, like focus our energy on are actually going to be companies that provide a service and value that want to like target more top of funnel, create content, focus on distribution and media companies are kind of built out of that. I mean, a big one, a big one that I always talk about that I think is like very relatable is like if local news was a DAO. So if local news Effectively, we're going to need another show. There's so much innovation going on in this area, by the way. There's so much innovation. I just want to like for marketers out there. Local news used to be a service, right? Like its role was really informing the community around, you you know, crime, new business, elections, government, um, etc. And then just because of the business models, they had to move away from that, right? right? Advertising became a scale game. So your local newspapers started focusing on national elections and national stories. And you were like, I don't need them for this, right? Like, I think the cool idea for this would be if there was a community that, you know, each household purchased a token, right? That gave them ownership of the local newspaper. And that token allowed them to kind of choose and, and vote who to hire as like the editor, um, allowed them governance on what to cover. So like, Basically, you know, the residents would be able to say, don't cover, you know, the midterm elections, cover why this 5G tower is in my backyard and who's funding it. And like, let's get to the bottom of this, like really being hands on with getting local news to like service the community. That's an amazing use case. And it's less. And this is what I love about Web3. People focus so much on the financials, but that is way less about the financials and way more about the influence. That's right. Way more about saying, I'm not investing in this because I want to make money. And in theory, drives the bottom line. Of course. 100%. Jared, you have to come back. We have a part two, part three. We didn't even get to secondary markets. There's so much more to unpack on the brand side. But as you know, before you go, we need the Jared Dicker Web3 bye, bye, bye. So what am I buying? I am I am actually buying Meta. Like not the stock, but I love the even though like I know there's so much discussion around like Facebook, etc. and the announcement, I am very bought in on the idea of what Oculus has done and how quickly it's been able to move and I think there's a lot of like outside innovation that needs to influence it, but I am pretty bought in on that area of meta and the future. Okay. 
What are you saying goodbye to BYE? What am I saying goodbye to? Um, honestly, I think I think I think I'm saying goodbye to. I mean, this is just me being totally roped into Web three, but I'm definitely saying goodbye to traditional advertising. Yeah. Well, thank you. I hope we all are. So there will not be banner ads on the blockchain. No, I think I think brand dollars will exist, but I think brands should start focusing on like NFTs, building stronger communities, how to like build more. This has always been like punting to audiences, content. Like just use yeah. your money elsewhere, right? Yeah. Like because if brands are purchasing advertising in order to reach audiences and convert to purchase goods, you know, what better way, going back to the example earlier, if you could start to build mechanisms where if you are, you know, effectively advertising for a brand, but that brand is also like recognizing that now and rewarding you, then do they really need to be spending money to target you? Or do you actually start to find those brands, find that value because you're incentivized to do that? Totally. So, I mean, that's probably obvious and that writing's on the wall, but a lot of people will challenge that and be like, you know, it's, you know, whatever gazillion dollar market and the dollars need to go somewhere. You know, I do believe that the, that, that marketers, you know, especially ones listening right here and, you know, advertisers should get smart about where that goes. It doesn't just mean reallocate display or targeting users. It should go to like, how do you functionally start to invest in your customer? Yes. Also, is it fair to say that will be the end of the CPM model? I, I mean, I mean, that's really up to you guys. Okay. Well, I think here's the thing, right? Well, here's the thing. The ad like object on digital, the banner ad came out of, right? Remnant inventory. The banner ad, right? Basically came out of the transitionary moment, which is from print, print to digital. That's right. Where, where newspapers didn't want to spend any energy on digital advertising because print was their business and they put one person on it that designed the page in an exact replica of, of the, the print, print page, page and put the ads on the side and didn't staff it. So Google came in and said, hey, we'll figure out how you monetize that. That's right. And then all of a sudden they own their business. I mean, traditional like media companies gave that business away. Google, Google didn't take it. They didn't put any attention or time on that. And we're in that moment right now. This is why like when People, you go back to, and I think maybe we spend maybe part of session two, episode two with Jared Dicker on this, is the content evolution. Because I think that for marketers, they looked at it as like another place to do advertising rather than creating yes, yes. valuable, right? Va yes. Something valuable. And like, let's look at that fucking arc. By the way, you follow that arc. Excuse me. I get so excited. But you look at that arc, then you can see where Web3 is going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it finally is like content is not an afterthought or an add-on or an ancillary project. It is the path. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. Yes, content and programming. Yeah. It's programming. And then you want to talk about the, the agency model. Yeah. Now is the time where agencies have the opportunity to go and create. You have to shift. There are so many freaking amazing storytellers and creatives and in innovators. And under they understand the fact that there are thousands of creatives sitting in advertising agencies still making 30 second ads when they could be creating these phenomenal experiences and value for the consumer blows my mind. So well, when you're no longer confined to a 30 second time frame or a 728 by 90 box, it changes the game. But before you go, what are you doing yourself? The last buy, BY, what is Jared Dicker doing? What am I doing myself? DIY? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Oh, it's Christmas time. I'm going to be putting together all the kids' toys. Jared Dicker, 
You're coming back. If you're not following at Jared Dicker, be sure to go hit the follow button. So much unfolding in the feed. Jared, always a pleasure when we can find you. We appreciate you. <laughs> no one knows how true this that is. No one knows how, true, <laughs> how many texts have been. Jared, where are you? Are you there? <laughs> it's us. Oh, oh, well, man. thank you, Jared. Thanks, and, Jared. Um, this was fun. I always come back for part two. Of course. So always a fascinating conversation with Jared. We're fortunate enough to get our own version of Jared Dicker consulting uh, on the group text, but uh, appreciate Jared coming by. This is like conversation one of a hundred and getting deeper into and understanding uh, everything that this new Web3 space has to offer. And I think what's really interesting, Alexa, is you don't have to wait for your organization to get into Web3 to start to think about the application of principles for how we market today. You shouldn't wait. I think that's the big thing. Like you shouldn't wait and you should be hiring people and talent and partners and talking to lots of people about where you can kind of uniquely start to experiment. I was talking to a really good friend of ours the other day, Nick Jazarian at Target. And we were talking about maybe now more than ever, brand marketers and media folks who have been in on the media side really have the opportunity to think and act and start to function in their organization more like product people or product marketers. And why that's important is because understanding, again, you always have to go back to understand that consumer and what they're about, what they're doing and what they're interested in and then how to bring them value. Plus the whole world basically is driven by media right now. And I think Jared prompts us in this, the media model for how we buy, how we look at media, where we buy media, who we're buying it from, how we're actually transacting on that media has got to change. So there's huge change. I don't know how that's going to happen, but you know, one thing that I would love to do is invite the Atlantia community to come and start to think about that with us. So Atlantia, we've got a lot of things to solve out there and we'd love to hear from you. How are you thinking about Web3? What are you doing? What are your questions? Who are you talking to? And how do we start to think about media, buying, selling, and strategy for Web3. We want to hear from you. So hit us up at Atlandia Podcast on Twitter. We want to hear from you. So that is it, Atlandia 2021 coming to a close. Thank you so much for listening to all of our great conversations this year. Big thank you to all of our guests for stopping by and iHeart for supporting us. Alexa, Ryan, our producer, and I wishing you all the best in 2022. We'll be back with all new episodes and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Atlandia Podcast to hear what's coming next. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.